This podcast is sponsored by Media First, who design and deliver bespoke media, message development, presentations and crisis communications training. Find out more by visiting mediafirst.co.uk. Hello, welcome to the Media Landscape. I'm Julia Bell and I'll be talking you through the last week's news and preparing you for what's ahead. Today, we'll look at Aldi's incarcerated caterpillar cake and why it appealed to our human nature. We'll discuss missed inclusivity opportunities in world rugby and a Bank of England blunder that earned the governor multiple front page splashes. This week's journal on the go was TV and radio broadcaster Alex Morgan, who talked me through this great resignation from Downing Street and whether the PM has totally lost control. Now, in extremely important news this week, Aldi and M&S have reached a settlement over their Colin the Caterpillar and Cuthbert the Caterpillar cake row. Um, I'm sure you remember last year, M&S took legal action against the discount retailer Aldi, claiming it had intellectual property over the cake's design. The whole thing really rather played into Aldi's hands. I remember them um, tweeting a picture of Cuthbert behind bars <laughs> and also a courtroom drawing um, where little Cuthbert was on the stand next to the judge um, <laughs> pleading his innocence, presumably. Anyway, Aldi had to stop selling Cuthbert while the dispute rumbled on. But the latest is that the two have signed a confidential agreement. And from what the Aldi spokesperson said, Cuthbert will be available again soon. They tweeted on the 1st of February, quote, Getting out on good behaviour. Keep an eye out for Cuffy B this spring. Um, Now, there's two things to mention about this. The first is, in this totally bizarre way, this was actually a textbook case study of the perfect story. And this theory behind this, actually, that um, Adam, who writes the Media First blog, went into in great detail in this piece he did at the time, which we can link in the description. But essentially, it was unusual... It was silly. And, you know, we were entering year two of a pandemic. We all really needed a laugh at the time. And most importantly of all, in my opinion, it was human because we were all so familiar with the caterpillar cake. It's part of the sort of quintessential British experience. We've all been a part of the ceremony of the group insisting that you get to take home the white chocolate face when it's your birthday or your leaving due. And I think, you know, that is why this took the nation by storm. And the thing about it was that Aldi seemed to really get that. They seemed to really get the relatability and the humanity of the the story. I remember at the height of the dispute last year when they tweeted, hey, Marks and Spencers, can Colin and Cuthbert be besties? We're bringing back a limited edition Cuthbert. We want to donate profits to cancer charities, including your partners at Macmillan Cancer and ours at Teenage Cancer. Let's raise money for charity, not lawyers. Hashtag caterpillars for cancer. And then M&S replied saying, hey, Aldi UK, we love a charity idea. Colin's been a big fundraiser for years. We just want you to use your own character. How about hashtag Kevin the carrot cake? That idea's on us. So here, I think Aldi got to be the silly, cheeky one and the charitable one, right? While M&S looked, I mean, kind of mean-spirited and and lacking in humour. So since then, even though M&S have undeniably enjoyed a massive boost in sales for the Colin franchise, and it is more of a franchise now than a cake, I still thought that they would learn a bit of a lesson 
and exhibit some humour now that they're back in the headlines with this settlement. But instead, the M&S spokesperson said this this week, quote, Like many other UK businesses, we know the true value and cost of innovation and the enormous time, passion, creativity and attention to detail that goes into bringing a product to market and building its brand over many years. So it's understandable that we want to defend our intellectual property and protect our suppliers, many of them small businesses that have worked with us for decades. Everything they said there is true. I can't argue with any of it. But do I feel like... The M&S head office is a barrel of laughs. <laughs> no, whereas underdog Aldi, on the other hand, have sort of cracked that human appeal throughout this whole thing. I wanted to mention this uncomfortable interview between Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, and the BBC, where he said that people who are fearful about the cost of living crisis should not ask for a big pay rise from their employer. Here's a short clip of that conversation. You're trying to get into people's heads and ask them not to ask for too high pay rise. Well, is, is broadly, really I mean, broadly, yes, uh, really? I would say that. Uh, in the sense of saying we do need to see in a moderation of wage rises. Now, that's painful. That was Andrew Bailey talking to the BBC's Faisal Islam. And the thing is, I don't think anyone's doubting Bailey's you know, economic prowess per se. But it appears the media's <laughs> the media's immediate response was to check on Bailey's salary. And the front page of the Daily Star made him the feature on the uh, Saturday the 5th of February, writing, The Plank of England, bank boss earning £575,000 a year, tells the rest of us, don't ask for a pay rise. And then in a subtler but still damning way, the Financial Times had him as their main splash too, writing, quote, Bailey accused of pay rise hypocrisy. So he's being hit hard with this narrative of being out of touch, totally lacking in self-awareness. And this comment particularly about, you know, don't ask for a pay rise, even though it's painful. It, I couldn't help but just beg the question, is it painful for you, Mr Bailey? And if not, do you deserve to be setting out what is and is not an acceptable level of financial pain for the rest of us to go through? You know, is it OK if your salary is 18 times higher than the median earner for you to say, look, you have to put up with, well, with intrinsically getting poorer? It's hard to spin that positively. And that made me think, you know, had real planning gone into these interviews Bailey's team would hopefully have sussed that the the topic of pay rises was going to come up. They would also have known in advance what Bailey's view on was, which was not to ask for them. So you'd have hoped that someone would have intervened and said, hang on, we need to prepare for this question because if you just say that how it is, it's A, going to look terrible and B, it's undoubtedly going to distract from all the other important messages that we're trying to get across today. So I think both the wording of the message and the messenger himself were absolutely not thought through. And that shows in the backlash. 
Finally then, before we get to journal on the go, and this actually might be the first time I've ever said this, I want to talk about rugby. Um, Specifically though, what caught my attention is this story about Ireland insisting on wearing green while they played against Wales who insisted on wearing red, making it impossible in some cases for people with colour blindness to tell the teams apart. Um, It's actually fascinating. I read this on the Daily Mail and the BBC and both had... Uh, provided mock-ups of what it's actually like to see the players in red and green, but through the eyes of someone who experiences uh, colourblindness. And the two seriously look the same. It all just looks like the same shade of sepia. You know, it looks like old camera film. Um, Whereas if one of the teams had swapped to white, it's very obvious that it would have been much clearer to differentiate who was who. Now, World Rugby has put forward new laws to assist fans with colour vision deficiency, which may require teams to change their kit um, in an event like this where their colours clash, but that wouldn't come in until 2027. What they have done in the meantime, though, is publish new guidelines, at least. So they're not requirements, but they're guidelines. And that does mention the fact that kit clashes can be a potential problem. And if those guidelines came out in October, you know, we're now in February, the clubs are well aware of this issue. So I think their match this week was was a giant missed opportunity for both teams. Here's a big forum to show how inclusive and how progressive you are, to gather some positive coverage. And instead, both teams are now having to bat away negative press over the kit as well, not even, you know, their gameplay. Um, and both teams put out statements about this, saying how specifically inclusivity was a priority, But I can't imagine that people with colour vision deficiency feel particularly inspired by that. I think both are making poor decisions PR wise. I think if one team made an exception, swapped to white just for the occasions that playing a a clashing team, it would mean the absolute world to a portion of their fans. Okay, time now for our journal on the go, Alex Morgan. Uh, I started off by noting that there had been five resignations from Downing Street in the space of 24 hours. And I asked if this meant that Prime Minister Boris Johnson had officially totally lost control. Well, in response to the resignations, we had the Downing Street chief spokesperson say to the media, the Prime Minister is still in control of number 10. And the spin from the government has very much been This is all part of that plan for change. We promised change at number 10. Here it is. The thing is, though, even number 10 has had to concede that three of the resignations, the five at this stage, they say were mutual. Two at least were not mutual. And one was Manira Mirza. She has been with Boris Johnson since he was in City Hall, since he was mayor of London, all the way through vote leave, his leadership campaign, the pandemic. She left Mm -hmm. over remarks Boris Johnson made in the House of Commons, insinuating Keir Starmer in some way, didn't prosecute Jimmy Savile. That's in his role prior to politics, right? Uh, Yes, exactly. In in his role as director of um, public prosecutions prior. Now, Johnson made that in a response to Keir Starmer when it came to, you know, the Partygate things. It was a heated exchange in Parliament. But Manira Mirza, in a very stinging letter, said it was was a partisan, you know, use of a horrendous child sex case. I mean, this was one of Boris Johnson's closest, closest aides. That resignation was not something Downing Street controlled. Another member of her policy department left. So that's two members of the policy department. Then the other three we had fired at this stage, at the time of talking, those have been, you know, there's a sense of Downing Street almost getting rid of them or leaning on them to leave. 
to show that actually, no, it's not a mass exodus of people. Boris Johnson's also kicking people out. Yeah. And and just touching back on that Jimmy Savile um, accusation that Johnson made in the Commons, even key ministers have been distancing themselves from that. Rishi Sunak, Sajid Javid, they've both said, you know, they wouldn't condone that comment. Uh, and so that feeds into the narrative of the PM losing control. And since then, he's backtracked, hasn't he? Let's have a listen to what he's said. Let's be absolutely clear. I'm, I'm talking not about uh, the leader of the opposition's personal um, record when he was, uh, when he was DPP. Uh, and, and, I, and I totally understand that he had nothing to do uh, personally with those decisions. I was making a point about um, the, his responsibility for the organisation uh, as a whole. And I think people can, can see that. Bottom line... The PM lost his temper when he made that comment in the comments, right? And if we lose our temper and we make personal remarks like that publicly, Alex, do you think it's best to just straight up apologise? Or is he right to not take more ownership of losing more control? <laughs> well, Manira Mirza, remember the head of policy who resigned with that stinging letter, she said, I get it. Boris Johnson, you can lose your temper. And as I say, the relationship between those two was really close. In fact, it's reported that she's been one of the most influential women in his life. And she said in her letter, I told you apologising for those comments was the right thing. She resigned after Boris Johnson in that clip you just played. Didn't apologise for it. He tried to clarify it. He tried to fudge it. The reality is what Boris Johnson was doing was repeating a debunked claim. Keir Starmer was not personally involved in any way. The way the prime minister stood up and made it sound like he was when it comes to the failure to prosecute Jimmy Savile, you know, it a lot angered a lot of people. So really... In answer to your question, an apology might well have, you know, a sorry is the hardest word, though, isn't it? Yeah. And I think it's so funny with things like this. Once they start to accumulate, it's like there's no going back. It's like a huge boulder rolling down a mountain about kind of rebels within the Conservative Party, resignations from within Downing Street, other ministers distancing themselves from him. Can he stop this rolling boulder? Is there anything he can do to make get back control or take back control, as he would have said back in the Brexit days? Or do you think this is just kind of keep that the news is what it is and it's just going to keep rolling regardless of what he does. Well, Boris Johnson has a lifeline in the, in as far as the Conservatives do not have an obvious successor and they're nervous about that. A lot of MPs as well are quite invested and have invested in the policy priorities, including making sure that there's this so-called levelling up agenda for many of their communities. There's a big worry that while they might be sick of Johnson, what guarantee is there that the next leader of the party has the same priorities and that the work they've been doing behind the scenes for the last two years won't just get binned in the sort of mm. rebrand of the party and attempt to present a wholly new government. And so Johnson's lifeline at the moment is the fact that the Tories are split about what to do next. There's no obvious successor. And of course, we have these local elections in May. And it looks like, if you judge by the polls, the Tories are going to get a, a beating. Now, who wants to ditch the prime minister before that? Why don't you let him battle on through, accumulate the scars over the elections, accumulate the scars over the cost of living, ditch him just before the next election? put in a new leader and make it look like you're a new party proposition to the public because that's what a lot of people are saying the Tories might do so Johnson seems to have time on his hands but I must I must confess to you the sense around Westminster is it's a case of of when not if Johnson goes Thank you to Alex for that and thank you for listening. That's all from me for another week. Links to get in touch are discoverable in the episode description and please do make sure you subscribe before you leave.
The Media Landscape is produced by 37, which is a journalist-led content creation agency. We help our clients tell their stories in a way that wins hearts and minds. You can find out more by visiting 37.agency. This podcast is sponsored by Media First, who design and deliver bespoke media, message development, presentations and crisis communications training. Find out more by visiting mediafirst.co.uk. That's spelled out media, F-I-R-S-T, dot co, dot U-K.